Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. Today we're going to be talking about the issue of immigration and more specifically undocumented immigration. This is something that we've long been meaning to talk about, but it's never felt like the right moment, I suppose. It's it's thorny at best. It's it, it incorporates a lot of issues that we've touched on on various levels, but I think if we're a show about work at some point, you do have to admit that we do have an extensive underclass of workers who are systematically abused in even worse ways than the working class already is. Right. But Noah, if we're all for the working class, why are we, you know, okay with? Because we're not terrible human beings. The whole idea that there is a specter of illegal immigration and all of this stuff is, number one, a relatively new thing. For the entire first half of this country's history, there was no such thing as immigration control. If you ever hear somebody say, well, my grandparents came here legally because they came through Ellis Island. Hey, guess what? Unless they were Chinese because the government, you know, mm-hmm. no surprise here, was racist, um, they could essentially just hand over papers and get into the country. There wasn't an extensive uh, law enforcement arm entirely devoted to making it impossible to get into the country. And the irony of this is that as this boogeyman has become more of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. The underclass that that boogeyman is supposedly... I I think what you're trying to say is that, you know, this sort of animosity that is felt in the country towards, you know, undocumented immigrants is relatively new creation. I mean, past 50 years, maybe. Yeah. You'd be talking about thing, the the issue in these sorts of terms, and hearing this sorts of sort of vitriol. Mm-hmm. Not to say there wasn't anti-immigrant sentiment in the past of the U.S. because there absolutely was. You look back at the teens and twenties. You know, it's a large part of what created you know the first Red Scare was this fear of Eastern European immigrants, especially. And even before then, you have things like the Know Nothing Party mm-hmm. and. Movements like that, for sure. Um, I don't mean to say that this is that the sentiments here are new, but mm-hmm. the systematic way in which it's been turned into this massive political issue that has to be at the forefront of everybody's voting decision mm-hmm. is, I think, and and I think you use a very apt term. It's a creation. Mm-hmm. I think there are people who are very specifically. Um, they very specifically want the rest of us to be worried about this as opposed to how each of us is being screwed by them, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, I, I think it's important to view this, you know, we are for the working class without qualifications, you know, not just the American working class, but the working class, international, because, you know, really what does it matter whether someone is born south of the border or north of it? Exactly. Uh, Lou was originally going to be with us today, and uh, she couldn't make it, but she's a huge fan of saying that who, where you were born or what passport you have shouldn't determine what your rights are as a human being. And I think right at the beginning of the show, let's just make it very clear that we very strongly believe that statement. Yeah. Now, there is a recent news story that caught a lot of attention, especially on the right wing. New York passed a law that allows undocumented immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. Again, if this was, you know, something they could do up until 2001. Why 2001? Hmm. Who could say? Interesting. Um, obviously, the uh, 9-11 attacks, you know, had a major impact on this debate and every other debate in American politics and led to some 
bad things, to put it mildly. Almost unanimously bad things, really, when yeah, it comes down to yeah. it. Not much good. No, not at all. Very suboptimal. But so the green light law is what it's called, yes. and it would simply allow an undocumented immigrant to go to a DMV or something along those lines and um, hand over these documents and get a standard, and I'm putting quotes around mm -hmm. that, Standard driver's license, which means that it doesn't comply with real ID requirements. So you can't use it to board a plane. You can't use it to cross a border. You can't use it to do any of the other things that a lot of right-wingers are afraid that <laughs> They're not going to be voting with it. Yes, exactly. They're not going to be, you know, stumping for the Democratic Party with it, mm -hmm. which is uh, what they're afraid of. So essentially, this is – this merely just allows them to – drive a vehicle around New York State, mm -hmm. you know, and I guess other states. But it, it really just lets them, like, enjoy the privilege right. of driving to work. Previously, the, you know, you would either have people driving without a license mm -hmm. or reliant on the generosity of others to get around. And if you're reliant on the goodwill and magnanimity of others, generally you're in a bad position. Mm-hmm. Because that exposes you to a lot of things that we would call exploitation. If mm -hmm. you need someone else's help to get around, that someone else can change their whims. And, and do, very mm -hmm. often. Um, I, I think it was recently, and this isn't in the U.S., but there was an extensive Guardian investigation into the uh, agricultural uh, trade in Italy and yeah. the extensive amount of what is basically slave labor that they're using. And I would have to imagine that a lot of the stuff that they're describing, it may not go on in the same way that it goes on in Italy, but for sure, the use of people's lack of transportation, lack of means, lack of healthcare, lack of insurance to exploit them, I guarantee you 100% that that is still happening here. Mm -hmm. And New York is you know, a famously liberal state, but it is not exactly leading the charge on this issue. It's like, this is like the 13th state, I believe, to pass such a law, allowing undocumented immigrants to get licenses. So it's not something brand new that no, nobody's done before. And yet. And yet. How, how are our local leaders taking it, Ryan? Not well. Here in Rochester, we have a county clerk. Uh, Adam Bello. Adam Bello, yes. Right. And a county, county executive. Uh, Cheryl Denolfo, who are Adam Bell is a Democrat, right? Yep. Who, in fact, he is opposing her yes. in the election later this year. And both of them have joined forces on this issue, namely opposing it. And not just in Rochester, but across upstate, there have been a lot of county clerks, you know, saying we won't enforce this law. We will not hand out driver's licenses or I think Erie County's county clerk has uh, said they're going to sue the state. When laws are passed that Republicans and conservative Democrats don't like, they are finding ways to oppose it, you know, that uh, go beyond uh, the standard legislative process. Yeah, yes. no, that's just become the new thing. We've talked on uh, the show before whenever – it's been relevant, mm -hmm. that now it's not enough to pass the law. Now you have to have enough money for the law to survive a court challenge. And that always means that uh, public municipalities and so mm -hmm. on waste a ton of money just doing a thing that in a country that made sense, you would simply defeat legislatively. You would simply mm -hmm. repeal. Right. But, you know, you – not only can you not admit that you're wrong, you also can't admit that the previous lawmakers mm -hmm. were wrong Th these This days. is very much an aside, but have you seen the news out of Oregon? Uh, oh, the, the part where a neo-Nazi militia uh, compelled the, this the, 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 the Senate Democrats to give up on a climate change bill? That More or less. Um, the Republicans in that state are uh, the minority in the legislature and, you know, do not have the votes to block any sort of legislation. Mm -hmm. But they have enough members to prevent a quorum, you know, the necessary number of legislators that mm -hmm. have to be present for a law to pass. So what Republicans did was just flee. 
Yep. They were hiding out in Idaho. It's the same thing that Democrats did in Wisconsin a few years back. And I seem to remember the Republican Party as a whole, nationally, being very angry that that happened. Mm -hmm. But the difference is that in that circumstance, the Republicans still got everything that they wanted. Mm -hmm. And eventually it came to, like, the Oregon governor, like, threatening to bring in the National Guard to force these lawmakers to, you know, go to the Capitol building. And legislators responding by, like, saying, come and take it, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. armed. And in the end, the Democrats caved on the bill because, yeah, it's what Because the guns were pointing at them and not at the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it strikes to this larger issue of, you know, the legislative option isn't going to be enough going forward because we have an increasingly extreme Republican Party. And apparently an increasingly cowardly Democratic Party. Again, Bello is running to replace Dinolfo in this election. He yeah. could actually uh, – his his objection is couched very specifically in the language of process. Mm-hmm. He's talking about how he's worried that clerks at DMVs and things like that will not necessarily be – ready to go with this, and so that you'll have to send people who want to apply for these licenses to a state-run DMV, which I Mm -hmm. don't understand what that means, and I don't care. But he, like you just said, this is not the first state to do this. Like, there are almost certainly ways in which this can be done. It can be done. Um, So this is just spineless. Yeah. It's actually a little bit of a surprise to me that this is something the, you know, New York Democrats took up that they passed this bill Mm because I know in in the early days of this show, you know, the movement to get this bill passed is something that I had heard about and was curious about, you know, didn't have the uh, know-how to contact them and I wanted them to come on the show basically. But they, um, and that was, you know, a year and a half ago and it's only now that this bill is being passed. Uh, New York had a renegade group of Democrats running its state Senate for oh, yeah, the IDC. A, a couple of years that prevented any sort of progressive legislation from coming to the table even. Mm-hmm. Um, and good riddance to them. Mm-hmm. So now it has passed, which credit where credit is due in this case, you know, the Democrats did this now. It's fine to credit them with this, with this achievement, right? I think the one angle where people are sort of correct on this, is that it is something of an upstate versus downstate issue Mm -hmm. in the sense that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think New York City had some of these provisions already in place. That that seems right. And it seems like a lot of the Democrats who were very heavily in favor of this law, it will not surprise you, are from New York City. And they were basically uh, having to answer questions from their fellow Democrats in upstate and in Long Island, Mm -hmm. who are typically more conservative than city Democrats are. But, of course, the response to that is that, of course, representatives, particularly in upstate, are going to be a little bit more leery of things that grant undocumented immigrants any power because that's where a lot of undocumented labor is in New York State. Right. It's agricultural labor in large part. Exactly. So it's not very surprising that they would um, hear of this bill and immediately start feeling their pocketbook thin out, (laughs) which, again – it, it's it's cowardly, but that's how we do politics in this country now. So you had to expect that they would do this. And by the way, yeah. what did um, – for this weird procedural stand on this issue, what did Adam Bellow get? What what did he get out of that? Unclear. The answer is that Denolfo still told everybody <laughs> that he's not standing up to the governor because he said <laughs> he would enforce the law. So he didn't get anything for it. It didn't work. It wasn't good. The, the the problem in this country, really, not to get too high-minded here, is, you know, both parties are being led by people who are worried about what Fox News viewers are going to think. Mm-hmm. The conservatives are, of course, looking out to the right and to potential primaries, and Democrats are terrified of how issues like this will play on Fox News because Fox News is, of course, already – undoubtedly sensationalizing this story and the right-wing media at large, not just Fox. Every source that I looked at had somehow managed to make the law seem worse than the last one. The part where it actually mentioned what the real changes were and the fact that this is a 
regular old driver's license, that mm-hmm. it doesn't give you any superpowers, that you can't just show it to a cop and get out of jail free <laughs> or whatever, those were always buried way below all of the things that were Republican politicians saying, oh, no, we don't trust this law. There was a very interesting one where an assemblywoman from Staten Island, Nicole Maliotakis, said, um, well, I'm sure most of the people applying for these will be good people. And I was kind of surprised to see her actually needing to include that clause Mm -hmm. in there. That was surprising to me. Most, I assume, are good people is not the wording I would use. Uh, no, it's and, terrible. And recent contact. But the fact that she was the fact that she even felt the need to include that was mm-hmm. uh fairly surprising to me. Overall, it's just the thing that I keep coming back to with this is that uh, my theme on punching out in general mm-hmm. is always that people are running up the score. Here's an excellent example of that. This is something that was uncontroversial until a concerted movement of capitalists and their pocket politicians decided to make it controversial. Mm -hmm. This is a thing that the average person did not care about until September 11th, as we've just pointed out. And now it's supposed to be a bedrock principle that we do not give undocumented immigrants access to the DMV. (laughs) And then you've got politicians going toe-to-toe over something that really... (laughs) It just... It's so incomprehensible to me that... All it does is let you drive to work. Mm -hmm. It gives you the privilege of commuting. Mm -hmm. This is not a huge thing. This this is not a benefit to that most of us Mm -hmm. want. You know, this is something that is mainly beneficial because of the horrendous exploitation to which the people that this law will Mm -hmm. affect are already subject. And you've got politicians in this state basically being completely unwilling to just admit, give give up the game and say, no, you know what? This really isn't going to change anybody's life in any yeah. it, it, of my constituents that hate this. And to a certain extent, it boils down to, you know, who benefits from them not being able to have driver's licenses? You know, it is their employers there in large is. part. It is, you know, people who can, you know, use that fact to their advantage, to, who have ice on speed dial, no mm-hmm. doubt. And and those people are often the ones who are funding, you know, Senate Republicans and the Assembly Republicans, and and probably a few Democrats too. Yeah, yeah, yeah especially upstate. Mm-hmm. It's that is what this boils down to. The more illegal you make them, the more exploitable they are. Exactly. The, the, the more vulnerable they are. And in places that rely a lot on agricultural labor, like upstate New York does, you're going to have politicians continually putting their thumb on the scale for the taskmaster and the exploiter, because that's all these people are. There is no difference between, none. There is no difference between these people and an antebellum plantation master, no matter what they want to tell you that there is. It's the same system. It's the same crap. We haven't changed. And the sooner we all admit that to ourselves, the sooner we might be on the road to a real reckoning. Mm-hmm. The the example that comes to my mind is, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, there was a story about uh, Texas undocumented immigrant was got injured on the job and in applying for workman's comp, his employer had, you know, used that opportunity to call ICE, you know, to have him deported because, you know, it's fine that you're working for me, but once you try to gain benefits, you know, once you try to uh, get recompensated for, you know, being injured on the job in probably unsafe conditions, Mm -hmm. you know, that is when, okay, we need enforcement and we need it now. Yes. It's almost like, uh, to go back to something that we said at the beginning of this segment, it's almost like when you want to create an underclass of easily exploitable labor with few to no legal protections, uh, you have to almost create the enforcement arm beforehand and make sure that they are as militarized and as efficient as possible so that when you call on them, they will show up and take your workers away as fast as possible. That's exactly right. It's, you know, that's what this boils down to. And, you know, it hadn't even hit me, but the last episode I was on, we did, it was that human resentments thing, and mm-hmm. we did that email about getting ready for ICE raids <laughs> and how it played it off like employers were the victims of these raids. And 
conjured images of bosses being led out in perp walks and right, things like right. that by ice. And that's just not the reality of it. It's never going to be that. It's going to be, you know, some dude out in the middle of nowhere threatening his workers that he's going to start calling the Batavia facility if they don't do what he says. Yeah. We'll be uh, back after this with maybe some brighter news. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. We've been talking about undocumented immigration and where we as the working class should stand on the issue, which is, you know, to say the problem of it is not that these people are, you know, living in America, living better lives as a result, but that they are being exploited by their employers because they are undocumented and because they are made vulnerable by this system we've constructed. That's what I was about to say. And as we're about to get into that we usually ignore the fact that the reason they're living in America and not wherever they're from, not that they should be stopped from living in America Mm. if that's what they want to do, but that the reason they often have to leave is directly our fault. Yes, our in the sense of the U.S. government. Yes, not punching out. (laughs) We have not overthrown any governments yet. Not today. Um, Now... We talked about how in New York they passed this bill that will allow undocumented immigrants once again to obtain driver's licenses uh, and how that's been, you know, fear-mongered by the right-wing media as this unholy act against, you know, this nation and everything it stands for. A horribly, terribly thought-out law, if I remember correctly, was the the quote Mm -hmm. of one county clerk. Yes. Now, but... There is also the side of its proponents, and not all of that is necessarily what we would espouse here on Punching Out. There's, um, just to quote from the people who passed the bill, there's a quote here from Luis Sepulveda, who is the, one of the sponsors of the bill, and you know, there's a lot of talk in this quote about you know, this is going to include significant economic growth. It's going to raise a lot of revenue. It's going to decrease auto insurance premiums. Local economies will see a boom as earnings and spending increase. Golly. And all of that may be true, but it's not the point. You know, the, or it shouldn't be anyway. Right. The, the idea is not to you know, celebrate immigrants because look what they do to our GDP, but to celebrate them because they're people, mm-hmm. they're human beings. Well, you know, cursed phrase, but to play devil's advocate for a second, given that the rest of us are also measured exactly in mm-hmm. in the terms of like how much do we contribute to the meat grinder, right. it's 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 almost interesting that mm-hmm. they would extend the same treatment to undocumented immigrants. Maybe maybe it makes them think the politicians, I mean, maybe it makes them think, "Oh, I am including them in the American experiment. <laughs> I'm also treating them like crap." Yeah. Now, there was a a moment in the Democratic debate the other night, and I know I said this segment would be about brighter news, but we're going to talk about the Democratic debate for a moment. Calling an audible. Yeah. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, who is the senator from Minnesota, one of uh, two dozen candidates for president from the Democratic Party, uh, in this discussion about immigration, you know, had used this line that, as I, you know, tried to look it up on Google, is... So a line she's used quite a bit, and she talks about, uh, to quote from her Twitter, in February of 2017, so more than two years ago, immigrants lead over 70 Fortune 500 companies and are 25% of U.S. Nobel laureates. They strengthen our communities. And at least that last sentence is correct. The idea that we need to justify their existence with you know, their accomplishments is mm, not great. Why? Well, what's wrong with that? Well, because it dehumanizes them the same way as anyone. And again, I was sort of cracking a joke earlier, but 
I think we're encouraged to dehumanize each other and to treat each other only as the sum of our economic parts. That's sort of a lot of the problem we've got right now. Mm-hmm. And in the case of undocumented immigrants, because they – because so much of the country or to so much of the country, they either are or that part of the country would prefer to think of them as, invis- as invisible, mm-hmm. it results in that being the only way that a ton of people can even sort of – begin to discern thoughts about them. And I, I guess the issue with this is, what is she saying about the immigrants who are not Fortune 500 CEOs? You know, what what if there were no immigrants in the Fortune 500 CEO class? How would she feel about the issue of that? Yeah, it's, it's a classic case of like trying to own people by their own logic mm-hmm. because being more fair than I need to be to the mm-hmm. salad co-meter... I think the thought is, well, the rhetoric against immigrants is, and there's no debating this, it just is, horrendously racist. It's incredibly dehumanizing. It's extremely abusive. And it often takes the form of saying, you know, they're just not good enough to be in the country. So her thought is, well, you're fine with it. If anything, she's, I think to people like this, that line is supposed to land as something of a, well, you think they're lazy and unintelligent and whatever, what if I told you that they represent, you know, our no, uh, a fourth of our Nobel laureate class and a bunch of CEOs and blah, blah, blah. And it, that's not number one. That's never been how that's worked. That flies completely in the face of the class solidarity that we know the global wealthy have with each other. But number two, it doesn't work because to somebody who is already convinced that undocumented immigration is this huge issue that must be dealt with by building a wall, mm-hmm. to somebody like that, if they care that the CEO of company X is an immigrant, they'd be fine with deporting them too. Right. It's, you know, you're not changing anything about that. Yeah, it's very much missing the point behind why conservatives have these views. It's not really about the productivity. You know, yeah. they say it is, they couch it in this language and at times because, you know, that's publicly polite and acceptable. Yeah. But it's not the point. You know, <laughs> it's 2019, Donald Trump is president. We know who what they really want at this point. The thing about small government and the founding fathers, never really the point. Yeah. It's for some of us, it was always obvious that things like this were just the American or the id of a good portion of America laid bare. And now the id is all that there is. The ego and the superego are long gone. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of liberals, their thought is if you just kind of like restore norms to this and you just kind of admit Mm that some immigrants are hugely, you know, influential in in what we do and and this sort of thing, then they'll just have to they'll they'll have to roll over and admit that they were wrong. And number one, if that were the case, then you know the existence of the model minority is nothing new. Mm-hmm. And and neither is the idea that you were just supposed to pick out specific individuals from a population and have them be examples that will somehow change the public perception of everybody else. Like Booker T. Washington was trying that in the Mm -hmm. early 1900s. This is nothing new, and it has never, ever, ever worked because ultimately for a lot of people, what this is about is the fact that they don't get to say slurs anymore, so they have to find a new way to express animosity and hatred. Right. It's it's not good to... The line I've always heard is that, you know, certain minority groups have to be twice as good. Mm-hmm. And and what this sort of thinking imposes is you have to be a Fortune 500 CEO to justify your existence, your mm-hmm. place in this country. And, well, most of us aren't. Yeah. And that's not. And to be fair, we also can't contribute to a presidential campaign. So maybe that tells you something about how much somebody like Amy Klobuchar cares about you or me. Yeah. Now – there's a, like a cousin to this sort of rhetoric, which is I, I see you see it a lot online. It's um, liberals uh, gleefully pointing out, you know, look what Trump is doing. Look at all these labor shortages we now have in the agricultural sector. You know, all these you know deportations. Ah, is this what you want? You know, we can't have this. Yes, the problem with this administration 
is that not enough people are being fed into the labor meat grinder. Yeah, yeah that's the issue. But again, that's the thing. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, part of the problem that we've put out here on Punching Out, and, and this time we're making it more explicit than usual, is that American liberalism always being identified with the left causes mm-hmm. a lot of problems when you flatten out the meaningful ideological differences here. Mm-hmm. But this is one of them, and this is something that in most other countries in the world isn't that big of an issue mm-hmm. because liberalism has always been about reducing barriers to trade, yeah. reducing barriers to capitalistic uh, markets. So, so markets. Mm-hmm. So, by definition, that is always going to be a philosophy and a political ideology that is going to favor a class that honestly is ultimately fine with the exploitation of undocumented immigrants as long as they get notified when some of them die. Mm-hmm. Because that's another thing we haven't brought up in oh, this gosh. context, right? Yeah. We had a very notable cave-in from not just state Democrats, but national Democrats. That's, that's right, yes. It's Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party uh, recently signed on to a Senate bill that had like 86 senators on board. So it was a bipartisan yep. bill, but it had been crafted and designed by the Senate Republicans led by Mitch McConnell. And the House Democrats, fearing a uh, breakaway by the moderate wing of the party, the blue dog Democrats, they passed this bill without amendments, without any sort of alterations that they had the power to add being, you know, the majority party in the House. Look, look, Mike Pence notified Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. that when a kid died in custody, not if, when yeah. a child died in the custody of uh, whatever nonprofit horrible company uh, ICE has gotten to do their dirty work for them, yeah. she would be notified. So it's fine. It's okay. Because that's what matters. Not the life of the child in the first place but whether Nancy Pelosi knows about it. Yeah. Democrats are so frustrating. Yeah. And uh, it's particularly interesting to me. You mentioned the labor shortages. And Mm -hmm. I remember in, I want to say this was 2011, 2012, the first time that hard labor became a thing again, for real, uh, like the old classic farm, prison farm Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, came back in full force after the Tea Party gains in 2010. And I remember hearing stories about how peaches were rotting in Georgia because employers had been promised, well, you'll have prison labor to do this, so you don't have to worry about using those undocumented immigrants. So at that point, presumably, they reached for the phone and called ICE Mm -hmm. on their own workers. And then the prisoners quite rightly pointed out that this is like horrendous work that nobody should have to be doing. Yeah, And if you're the owner of whatever peach farm thing, you can go pick the damn peaches yourself. Why should we have to do it for you? At that time, right, the Democratic caucus had like visibly shrunk across the country. And the response from the liberals was, well, this is fine because what's left will be ideologically much more consistent. And now we're seeing that, no, the moment the Democrats are back in the majority, suddenly we have a blue dog problem again. Mm -hmm. This is actually a recent article from uh, earlier this month, uh, June 7th, in the Pacific Standard headline, How Anti-Immigration Policies Are Leading Prisons to Lease Convicts as Field Laborers. This is from this year? Yes. This has been going on for a decade. Unbelievable. First sentence in this article, prison inmates are picking fruits and vegetables at a rate not seen since Jim Crow. Just, you know. Great time in, in this country's history. Which really lays it bare where this all comes from. This is, you made the comparison to slavery slavery earlier. You know, this is what this is. This is what it harkens back to. You know, 13th Amendment uh, allows prisoners to be made, you know, slaves effectively. Yeah. yeah. Pittances, if at all. Yeah, that's it. And you're not going to get the august likes of Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh to say otherwise. We know what their views on labor are. Mm-hmm. So that that's basically it as far as the we, – we talked the last time about how the legislative process has been increasingly rendered useless because the right wing will find ways to finance lawsuits or end runs around the process. And when need be, they will simply point guns at their opposition mm-hmm. like they did in the 1850s and 1860s and like yeah. they are doing again now. But 
this is another reason why it's lying dead because there's just no it, it often feels like what we're fighting is the accumulated weight of decades and decades of racist legislation of legislation explicitly meant to exploit black and brown people and form them into a permanent underclass that can be easily exploited for their labor and paid less and paid less and abused and, and, and exposed to there's there was a wonderful statistic i'm gonna paraphrase it at this point i came across in a book called subterranean fire by sharon smith which is that you know due to this exploitation we've talked about you know southern whites also made less than northern whites you know throughout the 20th century as a result of this underclass being created it's manufactured yeah. Which is it's, it's the rent-seeking class mm -hmm. finding ways to pit the rest of the country against each other. And that doesn't mean that you get a pass for being a monster in your regular life yeah. about non-white people or about undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that it's very hard to resist. All, all this serves a purpose. Yes. A, a larger purpose. Not a good purpose, but a larger one. Um, to quote from uh, this article again in Pacific Standard, uh, I think these paragraphs kind of lay the issue very cleanly out. Um, Historically, agriculture has suppressed wages and eschewed worker protections by hiring from vulnerable groups, notably undocumented migrants. By some estimates, 70% of agriculture's 1.2 million workers are undocumented. As current anti-immigrant policies diminish the supply of migrant workers, both documented and undocumented, farmers are not able to find the labor they need. So, in states such as Arizona, Idaho, and Washington that grow labor-intensive crops like onions, apples, and tomatoes, prison systems have responded by leasing convicts to growers desperate for workers. And I would bet you that in many cases, not in all cases, those prison systems are private prisons mm -hmm. run by more members of the rent-seeking class. Yeah. So it's amazing to see how this, you know, tentacled monster just reaches in on itself. You know, each little bit is providing for all the other ones and creating just this massive web that, uh, well, it looks inescapable. It, it's very hard from the outside to think what do we do about this? Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to go back to the Democratic debate. Amy Klobuchar was voicing what I think we would call the liberal opinion on, on this issue. And the oddly, the uh, soundbite that caught my ear came from Bill de Blasio, mayor of mm -hmm. New York City, who had said to the effect that, no, it's not undocumented immigrants that are keeping your wages low. It's your boss. Corporations, it, yeah. You know, it was very well put. And I, I think you had talked about how in this country the left has been this nebulous term that means, you know, everything from liberals to Maoists. And recent years have seen more distinctions on the left, which I think is healthy for our discourse, for one. And it's creating, you know, a democratic primary where we have this neat dichotomy right on stage together. You know? Yeah. It's it's certainly a big change from I came up during the Obama era, basically, and the number of times that you were supposed to praise a Democrat for being technocratic, mm -hmm. you know, for being supposedly so smart that they just had brains leaking out their ears, that kind of thing. But then using all of those brains in the service of making truly horrendous rhetorical points. And it was... Mm -hmm. discouraging for sure and it explains why so many democrats were honestly no matter what that went wrong for the party in those years just retreated further and further into this idea that you know we're better than this and when they go low we go high and all this stuff and it, it's a complete misunderstanding of political power yeah and uh, the the liberal thing is always supposed to be that our ideas will shine forth by their inherent morality or, or their inherent correctness. Mm -hmm. And I think even a lot of them are beginning to realize that that's just not true any longer, that you have to have actual power to put those ideas into practice. Yeah, I, I, I think the 
The neat example of this is Obama spending so much time trying to convince Republicans he wasn't a socialist, which, of course, he was not a socialist. But that effort, you know, spent on, you know, downplaying accusations of radicalism is sort of telling about where everything yeah, is. and what you're actually scared of. Mm-hmm. And we should be clear, too, that I think what this liberal take often misses out, and we talked about this a little bit, is that even because, again, to be more fair than I probably need to be to a lot of these people, if you do ask them about undocumented immigrants who, or sorry, immigrants who aren't CEOs of Fortune 500 Mm -hmm. corporations or Nobel laureates or whatever, they'll probably say, oh, well, uh, yeah, they also strengthen our communities because they're doing jobs and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And the part of the problem with that argument is that, again, it fails to recognize that undocumented immigration is a problem that is largely the U.S.'s fault in the first place for the amount and the depth and breadth of destabilization efforts across all of Latin America. Like right now, as we're recording, um, I think we're only a day away from that picture of cops in Honduras protecting a little Caesars. Um, in full body armor and whatnot because people are finally protesting the bald-faced installation of a complete monster as their president that no one liked. Like 2009, 2010, you know, (laughs) under the Obama administration. Yes. And I don't, and this isn't even the same guy. This is another dude who replaced him and is even worse. Yeah. Mm. So when you've got, and for every country we can name that, uh, El Salvador now has a president who uses Twitter about as much as Donald Trump does and likes to tweet Game of Thrones memes about his opposition. You know, all of these... I don't like that one bit. It's not good. So it's not just the fact that we have to be able to provide for undocumented immigrants who are coming to this country. We also need to stop ruining the countries they're coming from. Mm -hmm. And I think even the most uh, feel-good liberal, when you get to that point... um, Often, I, I think that's where the mind breaks a little bit, and, yeah. and they maybe start having a productive dialogue with themselves about maybe this is what's wrong mm-hmm. with us. We'll be exploring more of the left and how it approaches this issue after this break. Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. We've been talking about the issue of undocumented immigration. In our first segment, we laid out, you know, local conservatives and the furor they've had over New York's recent uh, decision to allow undocumented immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. In our last segment, we talked about liberals in a lot of ways, but mostly, you know, the ways in which their perspective on the issue falls short. And we said this segment, we're going to focus on, you know, what do we on the left have to say? So if you stuck around for the previous two, congratulations, you're finally getting the positive part. You're getting the the good stuff now. Yes. Well, so there's a site named Wayfair. It's a tech company. It uh, sells mainly furniture. I think it's got a little bit of other things going around. Overstock.com. That's the impression I get. Basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And it turned out that they had been selling beds to a nonprofit company Mm -hmm. that runs, um, is it the same detention center? Or is it a different one than the one that we've been uh, One of the detention of. centers that has made the news in recent weeks for the poor conditions in which undocumented immigrants and probably some documented people, I assume, are being kept. And children in particular. Yes. That That's part of the thing. Um, so it's this nonprofit organization named BCFS. They operate a detention center for... 3,000 migrant children in Texas, and Wayfair sold them $200,000 worth of beds. And what did Wayfair's employees think about this decision? They weren't happy. But one thing I want to point out here is this this all kind of happened via Twitter. Um, I'm quoting from the Boston Globe now. 
One employee shared an image of the executive's letter with a friend who posted it on a political message board. Brad Mills, a 33-year-old medical student in East Tennessee with no connection to the company, spotted the post and banged out an expletive spike tweet while en route to Alabama for a beach vacation. The best kind of tweet. I know I only have like 12 followers, but look at this dot, 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 he wrote. Wayfair is supplying the concentration camps and their employees are expletived about it. The tweet spread virally online and caught Wayfair employees by surprise. They didn't set out to become activists, but once they grasped the possibility of the moment, they had other social movements to look to as models. Employees at other big tech firms had helped create a playbook that turns diffuse pockets of dissent into an organized force that reaches the executive offices or the public in a hurry. That's right. We we talked about some of them on this show before, the uh, tech companies at Google, the, the, or tech employees, sorry. The real sorry. parallel here, I think, was uh, Microsoft, who had... right. There's one of their technologies, I think they were giving like cloud services to, to ICE. Yes, and their employees had raised the furor about it, and I and I think it was Google's employees who were successful in uh, yes protesting uh, something to do with the Department of Defense mm-hmm. drone targeting. I imagine I believe it was, but at any rate, yeah. So employees uh, apparently made aware of this by Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, put together a, a letter of protest, or had they? Is that the letter that they had? The, the letter cited here is the one that um, the CEO had re- emailed to employees because there were already some murmurings. But um, what this did, and you know, the letter didn't go over well, and so employees organized a walkout. Basically, I think this was last Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday, I believe Wednesday. So. We talked about the conservative and the liberal perspectives mm-hmm. on this. Now, there are two ways that we can take this point. We can either take it from the political point of view and say that ideologically this is a lot closer to what the left position is. But also, chances are good that if you're listening to this, um, you're a documented member of the working class. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody is you, – you are not in much danger. You from aren't ICE. under that particular gun. Yeah. Right. But – you're under a bunch of other ones, mm-hmm. and we know that. And I think ultimately what we're asking, what we would want people to do when faced with this particular issue is to stand in solidarity as as these Wayfair workers did. They saw that their company was doing something they didn't like, doing business with an entity that they didn't like, and uh, they decided that they would do everything within their power to put a stop to it. Yeah. Uh, to continue from the article, within two hours, an at Wayfair walkout Twitter account was sending out missives outlining the activist demands. A Facebook page with details on the planned protest cropped up. Employees conferred with activists at Google who had organized walkouts. And so you're seeing a case where workers were really taking power in a way. They organized not just a walkout, you know, a, a day of not working, uh, the company is based in Boston. There were like thousands of workers in the streets of Boston, which is an incredible sight to see, but also a boycott of the company on that day. And in the response to that also wasn't very great from Wayfair. Yeah, they uh, donated $100,000 to the Red Cross, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. number one has nothing to do with the detention centers. And number two, um, we're finding out that the Red Cross has its own issues. Which we don't have to get into right. here, but it's they're trying to look good in an apolitical way. Well, and the, right, because the thing is the employees did ask them to give those profits to Raices, which actually does provide legal services to immigrants and is yes. directly related on the issue. But you can bet that had Wayfair or at least their CEO, what, what they would be thinking – is that if they gave their money to Raices, they might then be the subject of one of these like right-wing boycotts that happen every time some brand or company decides to take a political stand or even just respond to political forces in a way that's not just monstrous and inhumane. Yeah. And I, I have a friend who is um, he's with Socialist Alternative in Boston, and he was there for the walkouts. And... I asked him, you know, what should people know about this? And the lesson he takes is that, you know, consciousness can develop rapidly, even in a matter of hours or days. Having 
leaders who provide organization is critical and that workers have the power to shut anything down if they choose to harness it. You know, it's important that these are workers and not just regular activists because companies don't listen to activists more often right. than not. You know, the workers have a unique position of power in our current system. And if they choose to use it, they can do great things with it. Along with the, the past 50 years that have brought us so much in uh, manufactured hatred mm-hmm. for undocumented immigrants and immigrants in general, really, uh, documented or not. Um, one of the things that has also happened over those past 50 years has been a complete erosion of the American workers' power, mm-hmm. uh, or at least of their formal power. Yeah. And the attempt to ensure that the American working class feels like they can't do anything about any of the problems that they're facing and that they can only, you know, they can never outrun the bear. Yeah. Except there's like 16 bears and they're all on fire. They can only outrun all the other workers. And some of those workers are undocumented and some of those workers are uh, foreign born in in other ways and some of those workers are whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what you're beginning to see is much the same way that for bosses for so long, it has been easier to enforce non-mandatory standards what workers are beginning to realize is that you don't have to be in a formal union local or you don't have to be in sort of an organized works council to say this is not going to pass muster. We're not going to be okay with this and uh, simply walk out or strike or organize in some alternative way. And to be fair, they apparently picked a pretty easy target because Wayfair seems to be the most infinitely dunkable uh, company in the universe. Uh, you tell the story. This you is... you sent me an article. Well, first of all, you sent me an article that was titled. Um, it's from Inc.com. It's by Minda Zetlin, mm-hmm. and uh, it was named Wayfair's lame response to an employee walkout shows zero emotional intelligence. Which, like, sure, that's the problem with it. But like, even that is kind of an own. But also, shout out Kev, um, a friend of mine managed to once get. Wayfair uh, banned from selling a major category of products in another country in a fit of pique caused by them refusing to refund him shipping charges for a thing that they should not have let him buy in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's this is a company that uh, I, I don't think their management is um, quite as... Um, Adept? Yeah, that's a good word for it as they would like to think they are. Mm-hmm. Now, you had talked about um, how workers have been stripped of their political power, and there are a lot of ways in which that has taken place. You know, you have fewer workers in unions to begin with, but also unions have largely been depoliticized. They're they, mm-hmm. de-radicalized at the very least. You know, The influence they have over politics now largely amounts to the donations they give to the Democratic Party and to people like Amy Klobuchar. Mm-hmm. It's so, you know, this walkout at Wayfair happened. Those workers are not unionized. You know, most of the tech sector is not. Same with Microsoft and Google and so on. But they did have some solidarity and support from unions in this instance, which is good to see. It is a good thing. I think you can't get, again, there's a web of issues that seem intractable. You know, Hillary Clinton famously had that massive graphic of all the different challenges that we're facing. And that was maybe a bad way to put it. But if you look at that, I'm actually going to stand up for that Mm -hmm. uh, image because it does often feel like that is what we're facing. We're facing a web where every problem is connected to eight others and you can only make progress on one if two or three of the others are not as big objects. But Ultimately, the biggest answer that we have for that is realizing that as a class of workers, that as the people who make society run, we have a power that no one else has. Mm -hmm. If you are somebody, if you labor, you have power that no moron sitting in a corner office who makes decisions and takes meetings all day has. Mm -hmm. That person does not make society run. You do. Yeah. And that's very important to keep in mind. Um, There are two points I want to make. One is sort of going backwards, uh, talking about unions, and they've been not just depoliticized, but, you know, it gets to the original point 
that we started the show with, which is a lot of times people associate the working class with opposition to undocumented immigration. And I think there have been some unions that have played a part in that if they probably have not explicitly endorsed these sorts of things. But you see cases where like Donald Trump won a majority of union voters in Ohio. And, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like this is often cited as the reason why. And what we would say to them is that, you know, solidarity extends beyond the members of your union. You know, it has to. It has to extend to your fellow members of the working class, the people who are being exploited by the same people you are being exploited by. You know, maybe not the exact same, but, you know, the same class of people. For sure. And all of the people that are exploiting both of those categories, they're all friends and they all hang out in the same places. And they talk about how to slice up the world a little bit smaller among themselves while they're playing golf. So your options as as a worker are either you see this as a zero-sum game, which will fail mm-hmm. as it has failed for the past half century, or you can begin to see the rest of the working class, be they American or not, as your allies, yeah, which there, they are. There is, you know, the issue for labor in the U.S. has been, you know, for decades, it's either been, you know, uh, workers overseas are paid less. You know, we've seen massive outsourcing of jobs, which has meant resentment of both, you know, capital and labor. It's been the anger over that has been directed everywhere, it seems. Mm -hmm. But it behooves you as a member of the working class to do is to help their wages go up, you know, because... It is only when they are powerless and vulnerable that they can be brought in to exploit you, exactly. to undercut you in another way. And, and it's always worth reminding people that, again, the global wealthy who have in crazy amounts of, of mm-hmm. solidarity with each other, they, they all are perfectly fine with each other in the abstract, even if they hate each other in the personal. But they all have the money to stop exploiting us as a class. Yeah. That's that's what it is. They have plenty of this money. You know that because they are getting to the point where they can't spend it all before they die. So there, There's no way. Yeah, it's literally impossible. So when you get to that obscene point of wealth, then if we're letting them get so much money under their belt that they literally in, in – multiple lifetimes could not hope to spend it all no matter how ostentatious they were or how bad they were at you know spending money which is the only thing they're good at then they definitely have the resources to stop exploiting us and we only help them when we divide up the world into smaller and smaller markets and say no i deserve my my wages and my benefits and my rights but this person living in some other country or this person living in the next town over because they don't have the right papers doesn't deserve what I have. Mm -hmm. And this has been going on for generations, this sort of, you know, more recently, this sort of uh, disempowerment of the working class is how I would put it. And we might be seeing a, a change, hopefully. I mean, this thing at Wayfair is, it's hopeful. It's something that we can look at and say, that's good. That's unlike everything else that's going on. That's good. And there's a a USA Today article with a headline I just have to read here. Quote, have millennials killed being afraid of the boss? God, I hope so. It's, um, and the article goes on to explain, you know, the things we've been talking about today, you know, tech workers have walked out, you know, millennials, it seems not happy with how the world is today. Who could blame them though? Yeah, if if our generation can uh, can be famous for one thing, let it be no, let it be famous for killing being afraid of the boss. Yeah. That that's an article I'd be happy to read and and put everywhere. Finally, we're killing something that deserves to be killed. Yeah. But that's the thing; it it always comes back to this. I think it is very it's very illustrative that a lot of these actions because. In case you weren't around for the past presidential administration, this was not happening. Mm-hmm. We were, and, and I hate to go back to this, but we were all kind of asleep at the wheel outside of a core of organizers and activists who were trying desperately to bring attention to these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think what you're beginning to see is as things get worse, 
in places where union presence hasn't been a tradition, in places where workers have not traditionally been told that they deserve anything, mm -hmm. that they've been pitted against each other from day one, they're beginning to realize that that's A, an imaginary game that doesn't have to exist, and B, they're beginning to realize that if one of them sinks, everybody else is going to sink with them. Mm -hmm. It might take a while, but it's going to happen. Yep. And they're choosing to not let it just happen to them, which is indeed extremely inspiring. Mm -hmm. It's something worth celebrating. There have been a lot of things worth despairing over in recent news and the world, but uh, this is something that is unequivocally good. And we have solidarity with the workers at Wayfair and anyone else who wants to do stuff like this. Absolutely. For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.